Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical contexts here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's best and brightest radio station, bringing you exciting new programmes against all the odds. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm talking to Sam Byers and Carl Neville about the idea of the State of the Nation novel and the question of how to capture 21st century Britain in literature. So joining me today are Sam Byers and Carl Neville. Sam Byers is the author of Idiopathy in 2013, Perfidious Albion in 2018, and Come Join Our Disease, published recently by Faber. His work has been translated into multiple languages and his writing has appeared in Granter, The New York Times, The Guardian, and The Times Literary Supplement. Carl Neville has written two books on film, Classless, published by Zero in 2010, and No More Heroes with Zero in 2015, as well as two novels that we'll be discussing today, Resolution Way, published by Repeater in 2016, and Eminent Domain, also published by Repeater, in this case in 2020. He's a regular cultural critic for Tribune magazine, he formerly blogged as The Impostume, and was instrumental in setting up a series of now-defunct popular blogs on the 1970s, 80s and 90s. So, Sam and Carl, welcome to Sweet 212. Nice to be here. Really nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you both for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to have both of you on. Um, we'll come back to the specifics of both of your uh, recent novels shortly. But first, I want to ask you what you think of this idea of the state of the nation novel as a genre, maybe, and as a as a concept, and whether you think it's useful or relevant or even particularly interesting. For me, it's um, it's a term that tends to be applied uh, after a novel has been written, usually by critics, sometimes by the publishing industry. Um, I'm I'm less convinced that it's an aspiration for novelists while they're writing a novel um, and I, I think it tends to be a kind of shorthand for a certain kind of broad canvas um, multi-charactered multi-strated novel that works across um, multiple sections of, of society often through um, multiple viewpoints um, and that perhaps has a kind of like large-scale 19th century realist feel to it and I think there's often the implication in that term that it it diagnoses something about where we are politically and socially at any given moment um, but I also think there's sometimes the implication that it's making that diagnosis not only for the present but for future readers um, looking back at you know what a, a given society or nation was like um, at a given moment in time. I mean, that seems like a pretty comprehensive answer to me, so I wouldn't um, have much more to add there. But I think I might say that I think what's interesting is that um, the State of the Nation novel, as such at the moment, I think probably has to have some kind of um, speculative dimension as well, because obviously the State of the Nation is always difficult to grasp in its sort of a totality but I think it's especially difficult at the moment and that the, the realism that you might associate with sort of 19th century forms of the state of the nation novel I think can really easily transfer into the current moment um, f for a number of reasons so um, I think 
while it, you know, I think that is, as I said, a very comprehensive sort of um, overview of what the state of the nation novel is, I think that the contemporary one is it inevitably has a sort of speculative component, but that again might be something we think about as we move on. Yeah, I think that's mm. probably a good place to ask you both to just give our listeners um, a summary of of maybe both of your last two novels, because I think in both cases, the novels share some kind of continuing or overlapping concerns and interests. So Carl, maybe I'll start with you and ask you to uh, just talk our listeners through Resolution Way and Eminent Domain, which I know, you know, do explicitly kind of in some ways follow on from each other and in some ways mirror each other. Yeah, um, well, that's certainly right. So so the, the essentially sort of two, I think of them anyway, at least as being two halves of, of, of the same novel. Um, and both of them are um, counterfactuals, though I don't think they've always been perceived in that way. Um, so they're both set in a counterfactual present, one of which is um, more neoliberal in a sense than, than current Britain, and one of which is like radically more um, left, sort of uh, on the hard left, even you might say. So um, there are two novels in which the some forms of social organisation, some of the forms of technology and so on, are differently employed through these two different sort of um, potential political um, expressions. Um, and they're both structured essentially around the um, quest for the works of um, an author who's um, effectively disappeared, um, possibly has even disappeared between these two um, speculative sort of worlds. Um, and they are, you know, as Sam said, sort of rather large, quite expansive, multi-character, multi-viewpoint um, sort of texts as well. So in that sense, they adhere quite closely to that definition that he's just given of the State of the Nation novel. Um, and again, they're sort of speculative about sort of possibilities around the particular moment of what um, the UK could be. Okay, so we'll come back to some of the themes there. Sam, maybe you would like to tell our listeners, obviously I said earlier you published three novels and I want to pub, uh, focus on the two most recent ones here. So maybe you could talk our listeners through uh, Perfidious Albion, which came out in 2018, and Come Join Our Disease, which was published uh, last month. Yeah, sure. So Perfidious Albion uh, is set um, in a small Suffolk town, which it takes as a kind of microcosm of, of the country. And it's set in a, a sort of, I suppose, adjacent present or, or near future. It's overtly post-Brexit. And I wanted to look at um, the, I suppose, the effect of the rise of opinion culture and um, mainstreamed right-wing views and um, our sort of technological experiences on the sort of felt fabric of social life um, and it also examines I guess the potential for social control um, that um, you know is given rise to by um, the the power that tech companies have to mediate our lives and mediate our informational experiences and I suppose it's a novel that's in some ways quite cynical about lots of those things and which also I think presents its characters as quite trapped and then the third novel come join our disease I wanted to explore what it would be like for someone to really um, 
leave a lot of those strictures and live not only off the grid but outside of the norms and values of society and so it's about someone who very deliberately departs from the world of work, social media, self-presentation, self-maintenance, productivity, and enters instead a deliberate state of um, decay and letting herself go and ugliness and illness. And I suppose the marked difference between the two is where Perfidious Albion is quite broad in scope and multi-character, like Carl is describing his work, with the third one, I felt the need to shrink the perspective right down to the first person um, and sort of get rid of some of that expansiveness almost. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think that decision to sort of shrink the story down, uh, I think in an interesting way, come join our disease, uh, in that respect, contrasts quite markedly with, with Carl's uh, more recent eminent domain. Um, because Eminent Domain is incredibly expansive. It has a really big cast of characters. It's sort of 450 pages. Um, and it gradually obviously focuses on a smaller number of, of characters within this People's Republic of Britain in which it's set. Um, but I think there's there's something quite interesting about the the contrast between trying to be um to be more kind of expansive, maybe, or trying to kind of narrow down a story. Um, I mean, Carl, obviously, um, Eminent Domain takes the form of a, a political thriller, really. And so there is this sort of narrowing down of the kind of characters as I think the, the novel goes on. But, um, but I do wonder if, if we could talk about the different approaches the two of you have taken there and how they try and respond to the fact that when you were writing both of these novels, it was a time in Britain of real political flux between sort of 2015 and 2019. Um, and maybe the difficulty of capturing a country that was changing that quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, for instance, um, with these two novels, that certainly with the first one, Resolution, where it was written in the run-up to Brexit, I mean, I know we don't want Brexit to completely dominate um, every element of everything we ever talk about or think about in the UK, but um, so there's a sort of a looseness and there's an openness to that novel especially in its resolution so that's like you know why the title is partly a pun um there's a certain irresolution in an irresoluteness things don't get tied up partly because as it was being written it was being written fold into an ongoing sort of changing situation so i think this does partly relate to something that we um could think about as well which is that you know when you are writing something like a state of the nation novel then you're also writing um sort of you're writing in a situation of like rapid change or certainly we have been in the last um decade so you're you're obliged in some ways to keep it sort of fairly open and to have um an incompleteness to it which um can often be dissatisfying to a potential um reader who wants something which is much more uh, sort of narratively tied up and, and coherent and um sort of satisfies genre conventions in, in other ways so i think that um you're obliged tricky at the moment because you're obliged to both write if you want to write on on this scale you're obliged to write something both very expansive which tries to to get at the totality of sort of social relations but at the same time you're doing it in a situation of great uh, flux so you're forced into a sort of form i think again that's why i'm saying earlier and i think there's a speculative component it is inevitably there 
um, because you just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Uh, and a certain looseness and bagginess of the novel, above and beyond its sort of um, inherent sort of looseness and bagginess, is, is also um, forced upon you. So I think that makes it a very interesting time to write novels and to write novels of that type. Um, but I think it also means that you're sort of walking a bit of a high wire in certain other respects with regard to how coherent that novel is going to seem, both in the present and even in, in the near future. Mm, I, I really, um, that really resonates with me, what, what you're saying, because also, I suppose the thing I would point out that it, you know, that's quite exhausting as well, right? Like that's that's quite a sort of tiring and demanding project. Like I certainly felt when I was writing Perfidious Albion that the experiment was very much what you're describing, which is to to try and remain completely open to the present and, and try and keep working what was happening back into the novel and to sort of keep using the internet and using my own news feed and um, being very alive and fluid and I was interested in, in the extent to which the novel as a form can allow for that particularly when we factor in how long it takes to publish a novel like at least a year from when you finish it um, but then going into the third one I felt um, I did feel quite kind of drained by that um, process and I felt that I had um, I had sort of had to absorb so much and keep abreast of so much and keep my eye on so many different things um, that there was real um, value for me creatively in almost going in the opposite direction and then kind of closing the, um, like narrowing the scope and exploring the possibilities of, of narrowing the scope as well. But I also think, um, and it, it, you know, it's quite an interesting question in relation to the state of the nation novel is that, um, I probably grew up with a model of fiction. You know, I, I read a lot of like kind of, I guess what you would call big American novels, you know, like novels that were trying to be the great American novel. And I suppose for a long time, my model of fiction was that it was sort of multi-charactered and maybe, you know, multi-locationed and quite large and quite expansive, et cetera, et cetera. And I almost feel like it took me some time almost to have the confidence to say May, maybe I can kind of bring the scope down a little bit and I can still get some of the ideas I have in, into this narrative whereas before I think I, I hadn't worked out how to be able to do that unless I kept expanding outwards and bringing more and more in um, so I think that was also just um, perhaps trusting um, you know, not trusting my technical abilities, but I mean, trusting that less could be enough, I suppose, and that it took me many years, I think, to um, believe that. I mean, I think that, you know, um, we probably shared um, uh, an interest in sort of those big expansive American novels, you know, like Pynchon or whoever, I remember reading this stuff at university, you know, um, and in fact, I would say probably those some of those authors from the sort of post-war post-modernists um Kuva, bath pinch and all of these people are the people that had most impact on me when i was like younger probably might say my early 20s um i didn't necessarily aspire to sort of write stuff like that um but i do think there's a sort of i mean they do they do exercise a sort of well that sense of the great american novel is something that we don't 
particularly have in the UK, right? That's this sense of this like magnificently questing sort of, you know, attempt at capturing everything about this like ultra dynamic and ever changing society or whatever. And the, the need for the for the right to sort of surf along the edge of this um, essentially information network. You, you can think about because you can think about the frontier and the expansiveness of America. But in a sense, I suppose now almost everybody's in that you know, on that frontier, which is the internet, it's just, it's constant expanding and sort of uh, it's dynamism. It means that to some extent, we're all obliged to sort of be surfing the edge of this uh, like vast territory in the way that you think about American novelists as perhaps, you know, trying to capture this like vast ferment of, of, of um, the frontier or whatever. So I think um, not that we're obliged to deal on those terms or whatever, but I think again, and I think this is something that we um, we have in common as well, though, which is the pressure of the internet, both in its sort of immediacy, and how the novel is a you know a longer form, which takes a while, a long time to write, which takes a while to get published. How that can capture, how how that attempts to go against the internet and at the same time sort of hybridize and contain it, I think is a tension that um, probably both experience and that I think a lot of novelists experience whether they're writing those more expansive sort of um, texts or not. Mm. And I think there's something particularly interesting in um, Eminent Domain, like from, from what you're saying there about, it's almost as if um, part of your project, I don't know if you feel this in, in Eminent Domain, but something I feel it does really well is that it's not um, just writing about the internet or writing about a certain technological development it's at times mimicking the experience of having to pass huge uh, chunks of like data and information. You know, it uses reports, it uses other documents, it uses like um, uh, obituaries um, and it's cutting constantly, like often at, at very high speed between viewpoints, between experiences. Um, it, it made me think, you know, you mentioned Pinch and it also made me think of um, David Foster Wallace, who is obviously very interested in the idea of attention and how we pass information in daily life. And so I thought there was something really interesting there that it was trying to press at something not just material, but experiential, if that makes sense. I, I wondered if that was sort of conscious part of your project. Um, no, but it's interesting that you that, that you say that. Um, I mean, I think it was. I mean, what I. Um, I mean, again, you'll know some that like um, often the ways things get structured is due to a number of sort of um, compromises. Often, so um, what I needed was what what I wanted was a way of introducing the world of the book without having something at the start that says. In the 1960s and 70s, the world took this particular sort of direction, which seemed like a really realistic direction at the time, but which has subsequently sort of been, you know, considered as an impossibility or whatever. And so all of these things happen. And here's the chronology and the sequence. Okay, scene set, let's get on with the narrative now. I didn't want to do that because it, it feels quite clunky to me when, when people do it. So I had to find other ways to introduce all of the backstory um, into it. Um, and that interpolating all of these different texts was one of the ways to do it. Um, but, and what I wanted to do was to be analogous to sort of being dropped into a foreign country. I was living in Japan when I started writing it as well. And um, my Japanese is terrible. So, um, you know, I wandered around lost and anxious and trying to figure things out. And of course I can't read anything and so on. 
So um, I wanted it to be, in some ways, analogous to just being dropped into a foreign country and you have to figure things out as, as you go along. Um, but I guess, I don't, want to, I don't want to now say the internet is a foreign country in many respects where you have to figure things out, but, but sort of it is as well. And I mean, I think, you know, your novel like, um, also touches on that because you've got a character who is passing these um, sort of, you know, transgressive images in it at the start and you are bombarded and assaulted by um, all kinds of things on the internet that you do have to, that you do have to navigate and that you do have to find sort of um, resources to deal with often, often subjective resources because it's so attacking um, as well. So I think, um, you know, we could be both dealing with similar-ish things there. I mean, I'm, I'm presenting vast amounts of information for you to have to try and figure out, but what you're dealing with there as well is um, the assaultive elements of some of the content of the internet rather than just the scale of the information as, as an assault, I think. Um, so I think those concerns might, even though they're very different in their range and focus, um, still there's a sense, I think, of like the overwhelming elements of or level of assault that comes about through immersion in, in web 2.0 or whatever yeah i'd like to to come in quickly there i mean um carl you referenced sam's most recent novel come join our disease in which the central character maya she starts off homeless uh she ends up being given a job by this tech company uh where she is um basically becomes this kind of project of them publicly turning her life around quote unquote uh, and they, they set up an Instagram for her called Maya's Journey that she is sort of expected to know what to post on that will be interesting and edgy and capture her personality, but not, you know, overstep the mark of respectability. Um, and the later part of the novel is about her fairly comprehensively overstepping that mark and what, what happens as a result. Um, but the most kind of harrowing bits of the, the novel, I think, are the scenes uh, that Carl, you just referenced where she's working for this tech company, basically swiping left or right on images that are acceptable for public consumption on the internet. Um, and I kind of want to focus on, on this question about the internet we've both been addressing, because I think there's something quite interesting about obviously the way the internet has closed down sort of intellectual and cultural space in the last sort of 10 to 20 years. And I think the last 10 years in particular, which is that there's there's long been a, a concern with with publishers about time and with publishing novels that will kind of stand the test of time and so are maybe not too identifiably rooted in a particular time. But I wonder if the internet has done something similar to expectations about how writers use space and whether it has led publishers in particular to want literature to not be too rooted in a particular place. Um, and obviously with both of your most recent novels, you, you both do something where you take the reader out of a sort of realistic or immediately recognisable contemporary Britain and take them into quite different spaces, whether it's, you know, Carl, it's your People's Republic of Britain or Sam, it's the sort of squat or commune or space that these, these six women set up, uh, where they basically kind of liberate themselves from the demands of the sort of beauty industry and how that's mediated. Um, so I wondered if either of you would like to sort of maybe think a bit more about how um, about how this potential problem of um, of how the internet complicates like literary and novelistic space. I think there's something there about um, what we might call the myth of universality. Um, I, I think um, 
because it's so much easier for us to very rapidly uh, consume culture and because an awful lot now of what we might call kind of popular culture has um, as its sort of express aim to be experienced globally, partly because social media allows culture to be experienced globally and at times simultaneously. I think sometimes there is a bit of a danger that there's an expectation that um, all art has to aspire to this idea of kind of universality. And I think one way of achieving universality is ironically through the specific but I think sometimes people can make the mistake of thinking another way of achieving this sort of dream of universality is just by erasing the specific and, and, and working, operating in a kind of um, culture, a cultural non-space almost. Um, and I do think that's difficult territory for the, for the novel to negotiate because we do very much associate the novel with place. Like it, it is a form of place simply because the novel usually, unless it's a really radically experimental novel, has to literally be set somewhere at some time. Um, I, I think that has led to people trying to think about ways that they can, um, you know, play with that or like free themselves from that. But I also think there's, um, there's something a little bit strange going on with Britishness there as well, which is that I think British authors tend to internalise the idea, perhaps, that um, writing that's very specifically about Britain and particularly about um, non-urban parts of Britain will just inherently be less interesting to other people who are not from those parts of Britain. And I, I think that is a kind of like commercial injunction um, that we have to be careful not to kind of over-absorb over in our own work, to be honest. I mean, I think the, um, I mean, I think the sort of, the problem of being too, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a problem with being too, too locally sort of focused as well. Though, mm -hmm. so, which is like, I mean, I understand that sort of, you know, the idea that you, you get to the universal through, through the particular and the local or whatever, and that, that can be um, sort of like a valuable way of doing it. But um, I'm also sort of, um, again, I think it might depend on on sort of the scale of what you want to do in terms of like political imagination, because I think that there's, um, I think that there's a need to present sort of alternate possibilities, or at least somebody on the left, I feel that like the most sort of pressing concern and pressing imaginative concern is to come up with visions for possible coherent societies that are not, uh, you know, the Tina version of sort of neoliberalism mm -hmm. so um no i'm not suggesting that you can't do that through a focus on a specific character in a specific place or whatever but you you'll have to i mean so for instance for me and say writing eminent domain then i, I could start off or, or even resolution might you start with a particular set of characters and their concerns but because you want to think about an, another possible form of social organization which isn't neoliberalism then you know you're just obliged to extrapolate out from that individual character into the broader world and try and make it coherent or whatever so so it, it might depend whether you it might depend what you think the sort of um, political whether you have an overtly political sort of mission for your book and um, how you think that's best served i guess um for me it's like 
because what I'm interested in is, is those um, expanding the sort of political imagination, then for me, I just think like inevitably, I couldn't be too particularistic at this point because um, the larger society would just inevitably encroach on, on, on what I wanted to do. I was not saying nobody should do it or whatever, but but for my, I think my particular project and the thing that I'm writing at the moment, for instance, that's just unavoidably sort of um, sort of the case for me. I think. You're um, I think that raises a really interesting question in in relation to like where we began defining the state of the notion novel, which is that the the term usually implies um, a novel that tries to sort of capture something of our our present our present country, our present society in, in the present moment, like sort of, you know, where are we now? You're almost making a case for um, a responsibility that the state of the nation novel can, or maybe even should imagine an alternative to where we are now, or an alternative to the society we, we currently live in. Um, I'm quite interested in the idea that um, the imagination of alternatives is just as much a part of the project of the state of the nation novel as the representation of the reality of the present, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, again, I don't want to make myself like, you know, hugely sweeping claims, um, but I think that, you know, if we, are in a, if we are in a moment when it feels to me like we are in a, I'm going to use the term interregnum, right, horribly, so, but, but there you go. If there's an interregnum and that there are a number of like potential futures all vying to be expressed, right, and it's felt that way since the financial crisis, effectively. And I think that um, certainly what I would be interested in doing, or what I have been interested in doing is sort of in real time, in a sense, trying to map those things out in a fictional sort of sense. So, you know, like... Uh, the first part of those two books, Resolution Way, would come out of the sort of immediate sort of Cameron austerity um, sort of moment where the people that are now in power are writing Britannia Unchained and so on and looking at, you know, like um, UK as a sort of, um, you know, Singapore, uh, the Singapore model effectively and various other things. And then, I mean, he was very involved in the Corbynite left and those movements that came about. And so then tried to write something which sort of imagined that, well, what, you know, what if the Corbynite left sort of ran everything? Um, what if they were the only, what if they dominated politics in the same way that um, essentially neoliberals and centrists dominate? Now, what kind of world would that be politically and so on? So I think, um, I think state of a possible nation novels is, is sort of, I think, where, my interest at least at the moment lies and where i think the energy at the moment is sort of at least as far as i can see sort of best focused yeah mm. i'm yes yeah, so um you're listening to sweet 212 here on resonance 104.4 fm i'm your host juliet jakes and today i am talking with the authors Sam Byers and Carl Neville about the concept of the state of the nation novel and how it relates to 21st century Britain. Uh, there are an awful lot of things I'd like to pick up on there. Um, and maybe there might be something about the sort of Corbynite novel that we might come back to later in the programme. But um, to sort of pick up on some of the threads we've been exploring, I want to offer you a, a quote as a, as a provocation uh, this is not someone I think has ever been quoted on Sweet 212 before, and he's not someone I make a habit of quoting. Uh, but this is from a um, an independent article, I think published in 2010, 
um, about the concept of the state of the nation novel. It's actually been you know, a research in the show. I was slightly surprised by how little I found online, you know, really kind of interrogating this concept. Uh, but there was a piece in The Independent that quoted Martin Amis saying, Amos's stories often reflect contemporary society, and he is publishing a novella called The State of England in 2011. Um, and he explains why he believes the US currently produces more state of the nation novels. So Martin Amos says, at the moment, the US is the center of the earth. English novels in the 19th century reflected our political preeminence, but then American fiction stepped in. A century from now, the center will probably be China. And this is the key bit of the quote, I think. He says, we're no longer proud as a nation, and perhaps our fiction reflects this. We, English authors, are dissidents. Now, obviously, you know, as someone who kind of unashamedly writes from a, a left position, uh, and, you know, like, like Carl was sort of supportive of and to some extent involved with the Corbinite project, um, you know, I have the two of you on the show because you were writing State of the Nation fiction from what I consider to be a dissident position. Uh, so I'd maybe like to just invite you both to reflect a bit more on uh, on Martin Amis, which again is probably not something you're asked to do a lot and would maybe prefer not to be asked at all. Um, but but maybe I could just ask you both for sort of responses to that. My immediate response is, I think it's I think it's really interesting to try and associate the literature of a nation with with pride in that that nation and a, a feeling of kind of political and cultural superiority um that that is not my experience of writing fiction at all and just to kind of briefly like take us out of the the literary realm you know in in my day job i've, I've worked in and around community care for like nearly 20 years and I feel most of my work comes out of a deep disgust um, at the way people are treated and the, the society we've shaped for ourselves, which I see as a, a cruel, uh, inhumane, unjust, um, fundamentally corrupt world. That's not how I view people, I should add, like it's not a sort of misanthropic position. It's just how I view the systems of government and the systems of society and the systems of order that we have made for ourselves and the, the institutions that we live. And I feel everything I've written thus far has been born out of a deep mistrust of institutions and a deep mistrust of the idea that institutions are there to take care of us. And I think it's inevitable that when you expand that mistrust outwards, I also have a deep mistrust in the institution that is this country and in, in the very notion of a country being an institution and in the notion of nations, you know, as a sort of useful means of kind of dividing ourselves up and defining culture. And I, so I think Amos's reliance on the nation state as a means of kind of diagnosing culture and his association of the nation state with a sort of feeling of pride or a lack of feeling of pride, I, I can't relate to at all. And I feel like if we are attempting to kind of define some kind of aspect of the state of the nation novel, it seems to me that it, it is a fundamentally critical project. At the point of the state of the nation novel, 
should really be to criticize or diagnose something in the uh, society from which it's arising from. Now, you might say that that criticism comes about because you believe that that society could be better. Like, so, so maybe that is a kind of form of pride, but I just, um, I just don't associate it um, with, with those kind of feelings at all or, or sort of any of my fictional project, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not remotely patriotic, to be honest with you. So um, expressing feelings to pride in the nation would be uh, just something I don't have and I can't reach for as a sort of orienting principle. Um, and I mean, that doesn't mean, of course, like, you know, the, the, the trope then is, you know, Piers Morgan comes out racing into your imagination and starts shouting at you that you're, uh, you know, you're anti-British or whatever, or that you're a self-hating like, leftist or whatever. Um, I mean, it's just like, it's not patriotism that drives me but there is a certain type of identification that that i can't shake partly because of where i was born and when i was born which is that i just feel like no doubt completely wrongly that somebody who grew up in an industrial town working class background in the 1970s and 80s i just got the idea in my head that i represented a particular artistic vanguard that was my job to go out there and to express a great truths about uh, the world and that i was able to do that because of where i was um, located uh, in the class system that there's a there was a sort of a working class avant-garde and they were the great bringers of sort of like truth and vision or whatever and um, you know ridiculously I've never been able to shake that um, that notion so you know my interest in um, expressing things that are sort of about the state of the nation comes from that perspective I want to advocate for what I think are the best and most interesting currents in working class sort of political life and creativity and so on and think about the ways in which the nation ought to be more informed by those um, and so in that sense I have a polemical directly sort of polemical and political line um, you know I'm much more interested in that in that set of possibilities which have been foreclosed really than I am in like flag waving I mean for whom am I going to wave the flag you know for Boris for the Queen or whoever it's just you know I consider those people my enemies effectively and, um, you know, while we're sort of broadly politically impotent at the moment on the left, at least we can sort of, um, you know, generate interest uh, through fiction or some energy through fiction, which might help to problematize the current sort of situation a bit further, I think. Um, so, no, I mean, you know, um, I'm afraid I'm unashamedly a sort of, um, you know, uh, Corbynite leftist. With all the um, all the horror that implies. I mean, I, I don't think listeners will be shocked to find Sweet Two One Two broadly disagreeing with with Martin Amis. Um, <laughs> I often think about a Frankie Boyle editorial in the Guardian where he describes an upcoming Martin Amis novel featuring characters such as Billy Darts and Dave Rubbish. But um, <laughs> we'll we'll move the discussion on from, from Amis because there's there's something a little digression I want to take before I pull the conversation back to capturing Britain because you know the show is explicitly about capturing Britain but I think we do need to think about the fact that um, all of the authors I think that we've referenced so far uh, are cisgender, uh, heterosexual I think broadly, uh, a white and either American or British uh, and my, my angle to this idea of the state of the nation novel is complicated you know partly by my queerness and transness and indeed I've got a 
volume of short stories coming out um, in early June, which is a collection of tales about like trans and non-binary people in Britain. So it's a kind of state of the nation project, but it's also historical and it's it's looking at kind of particular gendered community. Uh, but actually, you know, my my route to the state of the nation novel as an undergraduate and postgraduate was through post-colonial literature. And a lot of the state of the nation novels I found the most interesting were by African authors writing um, in the second half of the 20th century. So I think of people like Chinua Achebe in Nigeria, uh, Usman Semben in Senegal, who of course we did a show on not too long ago, um, and in Gyugi Wationgo in, um, in Kenya. And there are of course uh, a number of others, not all of whom I've I've read, but you know, there's there's something very interesting there that links back to something Sam you were just saying um, about you know the state of the nation novel being written by dissidents who criticise and diagnose the societies they live in, and what makes those the, that triumvirate of great post-colonial novelists so interesting, I think, is how fearlessly they criticise, obviously not just the occupying powers and the legacy that they left. Um, but also the post-colonial societies and, you know, Achebe and uh, Semben in particular and the Chingugi as well, all three of them got in trouble in Gugi's case, went to prison um, for their criticisms of the post-colonial societies and in particular how disappointingly they often just kind of mirrored or um, retained the social structures of, of the colonial societies that they overthrew. Um, so I wanted to kind of throw that in there and just as a little provocation, um, maybe ask both of you, I, I don't know whether the state of the nation is an intrinsically white sort of genre or approach, you know, given the people I've just referenced, but, you know, is is perhaps for like women and, you know, LGBT people and, and other, you know, minorities of sex and gender. You know, I, I do wonder if this is a sort of a genre that is the sort of expected genre of like cisgender and heterosexual, like white male writers you know, and this idea that the university the uh, the universal um is still primarily accessible to to that particular group uh, even after you know decades of kind of decolonizing the canon i i think there's a lot there i i i don't disagree at all that it tends to be associated with a lineage of straight white male authors just like for a long time the great the so-called great american novel was was associated with exactly the same kind of demographic um i'm often very interested to consider the difference between what is being written and what is being published and so we don't we don't know um what's being written that that perhaps isn't being picked up and isn't being put out there but I feel we still have some way to go, particularly in the way that we think about work by men versus work by women, in that I think there is still an assumption that women's writing, and in, in inverted commas, and we could problematize that term as well, is sort of inherently subjective and to do with interiority. And men's writing is to do with looking at society, looking outwards, you know, taking on big themes, et cetera, et cetera. And although I think we've made kind of great strides in terms of broadening who gets thought of as kind of a great writer, like what, what fiction receives, what level of attention, et cetera, et cetera. 
I, I think there are still constraints there. And I think in a sense, they're, um, they're constraints of ambition. And I, I think when you're um, a 20 something straight white man and you go to university and you're fed a steady diet of straight white men writing seven, 800 page novels that you know diagnose the ills of their chosen society, it's just, um, it's inevitable that you're gonna sort of get it into your head that that is kind of part of your project. Because I didn't feel alienated from those works, it's, it's, um, it's inevitable that, that I felt that I could be part of them. And so for me, I think the interesting thing has been a bit like I was alluding to before, almost beginning to try and work away from that idea, work away from the idea that, you know, uh, uh, it, everything has to be sort of ambitious and outward looking and et cetera, et cetera. The other thing I would also say is, it's really interesting what gets called a state of the nation novel and what doesn't get called a state of the nation novel. And, you know, a, a novel I really admire, which I think is absolutely a state of the nation novel, for example, would be Broken Harbour by Tanner French, which is, um, a, you know, on the surface of it, a police procedural, you know, it's, it's a thriller set on an estate uh, in, in Ireland. And um, it, absolutely diagnoses post-financial crash Ireland, you know, the housing market, everything that's happened. But because it plays out like a police procedural, I've never heard it described as a state of the nation novel, but it absolutely, it absolutely is. And so I also think there's something about the term state of the nation novel that is unevenly applied. And I would also say, you know, not to pick another straight white man um, to add to the conversation. But in terms of you're talking about, you know, the novels of Africa, I also never hear J.M. Kurt Sayers work described as state of the nation novels, but they absolutely are. Disgrace is a state of the nation novel and it's, it's probably one of the most brilliant ones um, you could imagine. But again, for some reason, you know, those kind of novels aren't, aren't thought of as, as state of the nation novels. And so I wonder, I do also wonder if there's something about, is the state of the nation novel fundamentally a novel of the insider? And do, do we not apply that term, you know, when we do not feel that those novels are being written from the inside? You know, and I think that's particularly true of novels that are, are very focused, say, for example, on Westminster, you know, life in Westminster, political life, or life in the, in the media, like media life, novels about journalists, et cetera, et cetera. You know, is it actually a fundamentally kind of, it's seen as a kind of insider work or project? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, going back to that Martin Amos quote a little bit there, so, like, I'm, I'm, quite a bit older than, than the two of you, I think. So, like, I certainly grew up at the point at which sort of like Amos was at his sort of peak of influence and that sort of Amosian notion that the language center is in America and, um, you know, the Americans can do something uniquely interesting that the British can and so on was absolutely its peak. And then when I was at uni, um, of course, I did the American literature and we read Pynchon and Verse of the People and then that became, um, that, that felt much more at the time, much more interesting than what was going on in, British writing and certainly then in the early 90s we had Britpop and then we had the Britpop novel and that all felt very flimsy really in comparison to like the fact that you could discover like John Hawkes or something you know um so I think that you know 
I would probably have um, sort of grown up thinking, well, this is literature effectively, you know, this is what you do. You try and write gravity's rainbow, um, you know, which is a ludicrous ambition, of course. But so um, I think just unavoidably, yes, that gets in, that sort of gets imprinted in, in you. It'll depend on many other factors as well. It depends on how grandiose you are as well as, a, you know, a 20, 21 year old boy or whatever. But I think Sam's right that like the feeling that this isn't literature which really directly addresses you just isn't there, you know. Um, and also that essentially that sort of like um, ego ideal type figure of the sort of, you know, someone like Pynchon said, the reclusive but brilliant, um, you know, genius sitting away. Some of the great polymaths sitting away somewhere is like a very gratifying sort of um, ego ideal image for like a young man. That's what I'll become. I'll become this, you know, tremendous, the expansive, capacious figure who everybody admires, you know, um, and I'll do that through, through you know, the power of my um ability to construct fantastically complex worlds or whatever so i mean is there a sort of inevitable um you know synthesis really between sort of sort of questing sort of um desire for authority that you have as a young man and the kinds of authority that would be granted to you by being able to produce these kinds of works i think i think absolutely you know so in the sense that it would um track to you know particular forms of identity and, and engagement and experience yes but I also think it's sort of like particularly for me um, it, it was also pretty much a product of the time that I was um, around and um, what was very uninviting and, and unappetizing in the culture and then what was much much more engaging. Yeah we've um, we've got about 10 minutes left uh, here on Resonance 104.4 FM um, so I do want to bring the conversation back to two things that we've touched on about contemporary Britain uh, from a sort of left perspective and maybe roll them both together because we're sort of running out of time. But I think, you know, right, the sort of question of like how to write about Brexit. And I think maybe for us, the question of like how to write about the Corbyn kind of Labour movement might be quite interesting. Um, you know, there was when the EU referendum happened and the result didn't go the way that a lot of the sort of British the media and political and I think perhaps literary establishment thought it would go. Um, there was immediately sort of, you know, this question of who is going to write like the great Brexit novel. But I think the problem with writing about Brexit was because it dominated the discourse so much and because so much of the discourse happens uh, online and in, in public there were sort of maybe sort of three or four narratives that became very very familiar um and if you were to write um a sort of book that you know in which austerity and the role of the mainstream media played quite a big role you'd probably be able to quickly identify it as being written by somebody coming from a sort of you know labor left position um you know, more radical left critiques of the EU were also sort of quite familiar. And indeed the role of sort of Lexit, I think was the wildly overplayed in a lot of mainstream discourse about why the result went the way it did. If someone were to write a book about the far right being kind of divisive, whilst not really thinking too much about austerity or mainstream media um, and about, you know, people broadly being not very well informed without thinking about those things, you'd probably be looking at something coming from the sort of center, center right. And if you read a narrative about Brexit that sort of basically said like the sort of the bold, forgotten about white working class, like striking a blow to the international elite, uh, you're probably looking at something coming from a very right wing position. Um, and you could you could go back to, you know, a novel like even Richard Littlejohn's Hell on the Handcart from from 2001 um, as something sort of outlying 
outlining that that kind of narrative. Um, so, you know, I'd just like to ask you both kind of reasonably quickly, uh, whether you think that's a problem for writing about contemporary British politics, that the sort of ideological positions and the sort of narratives attached to them are maybe too familiar and too predictable? And how do you kind of get around that? I, mean, I think you've just opened up uh, some sort of interesting possibilities there, which is that, you know, what you would, I mean, I think you're right, but I think what you would probably do then is immediately sort of attempt to subvert them. So you would write about a plucky working class, white working class guy from the Red Wall, uh, you know, struggling against the global elites, but you would infuse it with uh, leftist politics. In other words, you know, I don't think that those, while those are the tropes at the moment, you know, I think what would be sort of interesting would be to take those tropes and to infuse them with a, with an entirely different sort of political agenda or whatever. So it, it is a problem in some way in that, it, in that it's settled and sort of ossified into that sort of set of perspectives or whatever. But I think, this, you know, that, that that's not a situation that there's some fluidity there. We can move those things around, we can shift them about and so on. Um, and that will get us into sort of slightly more dangerous territory, of course, because there'll be an inevitable ambiguity about them once we start to crack open those tropes and try and play with them. But I mean, I suppose that's, yeah, if you're writing fiction and if you're interested in politics, you, you're going to be in that sort of dangerous ground. It won't always work. Um, but I mean, I think I think the, the, the broad divisions that you're making there are absolutely right, yeah. I think it's it's interesting that we ask that, you know, I, I, I get asked similar sort of questions quite often. And I think it's interesting that we ask that question of novelists mm -hmm. and less so of journalists. And I, I think, um, you know, it's much harder to be trying to write about these issues when you have to file tomorrow and you have to sort of keep abreast of the mechanics of everything and the sort of absurd machinations of Brexit than when you're trying to take a sort of broader, you know, cultural temperature. And it always seemed to me, you know, like my job as a novelist was, was not to write a book about whether or not we were economically better off in or out of Europe. But what I remember about the referendum was that it seemed very obvious to me that whether we left Europe or not, the forces, the ideological forces that were unleashed and the way that Brexit functioned as a kind of Trojan horse for mainstreaming extremely right-wing ideas. In a sense to me, when I was writing Perfidious Albion, it didn't make a huge amount of difference to the book, whether we remained in Europe or left Europe, because it seemed to me that those ideas, now that they were on Newsnight, now they were all over mainstream platforms, were here to stay. And it, like, in all honesty, I think that has proved to be the case. I don't know if any of us now, I don't know how strongly any of us feel about literally whether or not we're part of Europe. But I think we could say that we all feel very, very strongly about what has happened to the discourse and what ideas are now considered centrist. Yeah. Um, sorry, Carl. Yeah. yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, I think like um, sort of Resolution Way, which is the one that deals most sort of like overtly with austerity effectively. Um, you know, that I started writing that sort of in about 2012 or something like that. And it was published just sort of before Brexit happened or just right around about that time in 2016 or whatever. And, um, you know, so, but what I didn't, I hadn't anticipated once writing that was the racism. I don't know why that didn't occur to me. I just hadn't anticipated the racism. I thought, well, there'll be a war on the poor. And of course, you know, the term Chav and Owen Jones book and all of that kind of stuff is in there. So, so there'll be all of that kind of uh, thing going on. But um, 
I suppose it sort of naively assumed, well, very naively assumed it would sort of, uh, sort of reach the point at which well, we're not going to regress back into like anti-Semitism and like overt racism and stuff like that. That's um, that's not on the cards, you know. But a certain restructuring of the society to benefit London and the South uh, to the detriment of the North and so on will, will go about. So um, I think that, like, yeah, you're right. I think we've found ourselves in a much worse position than than, than the dystopian imagination of 2000, or at least my dystopian imagination of 2012 would suggest. Um, yeah, much worse, uh, effectively. And, and Carl, your next project is dealing with that, right? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm, I've been very interested in what Sam's saying in, in, in terms of talking about interiority is often associated with women writing and exteriority as regarded with male writing, because the things that I wrote prior to this um, never had that structure, were, were much more structured in some ways, um, very similar to what Sam's currently written, which is very much about interiority and sensation and so on. And, um, um, and I'd like to try and combine the two to, to some extent. Um, but again, I'm sort of writing I'm writing forward into the next 30 years. And um, so that again presents the difficulty of trying to continually calibrate the text in order to stay in the moment and project a realistic future. So it's an interesting challenge. Um, maybe, maybe not one I'll take up again. We've, we've got a couple of minutes left. So um, Sam, I don't know if you have any more kind of concluding thoughts or, or anything on, on your next project, maybe. I suppose I have a concluding question that's very much on my mind, which is that um, I, I feel increasingly mistrustful of the idea of the nation. I, I feel that it is a project that no longer serves the global problems that we face together. And I'm thinking specifically of the environment. And so I'm interested to see how the state of the nation novel evolves to be one that is almost a kind of like state of the globe novel and, and, and whether that is possible. That's not something I'm personally working on, but I feel like these new global problems, you know, that we that we face, these crises, migration, the environment, the pandemic, I'm very interested to see how that changes novelistic subjectivity and, and changes the, the project of the national novel or the English novel or whatever, as, as we currently imagine it. I mean, I think I, I, I am trying to work on that sort of thing at the moment, Sam. So I'll do it for, I'll do it for you, mate. It's all right. I mean, I can't guarantee <laughs> that the so results bad. will be as good as if you did it, but, you know, I'll have, I'll have a crack. But I'm also trying to, I'm trying to, you know, like I say, think about some of the ways in which you're thinking about those things as well, which you want a very tight, very restricted, hyper-localised um, sort of setting and situation in which all of those forces impact, often in ways which aren't sort of immediately identifiable as being part of that wider structure. Um, so... Yeah, and of course, these are all uh, massive questions, which I think you know, both of you will be exploring creatively. I think a lot of other people will increasingly be exploring creatively over the 2020s and beyond. Uh, that, unfortunately, is all we've got time for today. I think, you know, the three of us could have talked about this uh, all day, uh, but we have to stop there. So um, Sam uh, Byers and Carl Neville, thank you both very much for joining me today. Thanks, Thanks so much. Um, listeners, I've been your host, Juliet Jakes, here on Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, please do stay tuned. You can find us on Twitter and SoundCloud, and we will be back 
in the same time and the same place next month. So see you then. Take care. Goodbye.